biggest difference between our receipt scanning and everyone else's is that we focus on total accuracy. And as a result, we have sort of this fire and forget model. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone. Today, we have David Barrett, who is the CEO of Expensify, which is the world's leading application for expense management, receipt scanning, and business travel. So I've I've been a user of Expensify in the past. It's a great tool to use. And I'm going to let David even talk about that, uh, explain it better than I can. David, how's it going? I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, so thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of who you are and what your story is? Sure. Well, um, I'm uh, David Barrett, the founder and CEO of Expensify. We do expense reports that don't suck. It's a, it's a bold vision, but we're improving the world one expense report at a time. My background is I've been a programmer since I was six. I started off with computer graphics and uh, video games, worked in the virtual reality lab throughout the uh, University of Michigan, went to the game industry in Texas for a while. Then I got into a sort of push-to-talk, video conferencing, peer-to-peer file transfers, things like this. And so it's, it's an unlikely background for the expense report magnate that I've become, but uh, it's what got me here. Got it. Okay. Wonderful. And Expensify itself. So tell me a little more about how it sucks less than other expense applications. Sure. Well, I would say probably the biggest, maybe the two biggest differences are first, it's a product built primarily for the business traveler. Uh, obviously, we're, you know, we work very hard to make a great experience for the administrator and so forth. But I would say everyone's working towards the administrator. We're the only ones that's really trying to focus on the end user productivity advantages. And I would say the main way that we do that is uh, we were the first to well, we were the very first expense reporting mobile app. We were the first to offer any kind of like integrated receipt scanning. And the biggest difference between our receipt scanning and everyone else's is that we focus on total accuracy. And as a result, we have sort of this fire and forget model. With Expensify, the way it works is you take you know when you get a receipt at Starbucks or whatever, as you are waiting for your coffee, you take your phone out. You take a picture of the receipt and you put your phone back and you never think that receipt again. Uh, we automatically read everything off of it. We figure out that it's a coffee shop and so we categorize it correctly. Uh, we will submit it to your uh, accountant or finance team according to whatever schedule they configure. Then we do all sorts of analysis in the receipt to make sure that it's not fraudulent, that it fits correctly. And then we'll automatically reimburse it and then export the accounting package. And so it's a totally automated experience where you just take a picture of the receipt and the money will be in your bank account tomorrow. And so this sort of uh, end-to-end real-time expense reporting design was sort of our, uh, our real differentiation in the marketplace. And it's not just the best for the employee because you just don't think about the receipts. You just take a picture of them and they forget them. But it's also the best for the administrator because we do all of the tedious grinding work for everyone. Wonderful. Great. And so, David, I mean, the the business itself, I mean, how does Expensify make money? I mean, it's pretty simple. Uh, we charge per activity. And so basically, we charge $9 a month 
for each active user. And so activity for us just means if you've done anything that modifies data, like you've scanned a receipt, you've approved a report, something like that. And so it's just $9 per active user. And so you sign up your whole company, but you only charge, or we only pay for those that are actually active. Got it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm reading here, and maybe these numbers might be a little dated, so correct me if I'm wrong. So over 4.5 million users and more than 300,000 companies use Expensify. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, yeah, I think those numbers are a bit out of date. It's more like 6 million users and, um, I don't know, let's call it probably like half a million businesses. Uh, now, I'd say that's a little misleading, though. I would say we have a huge, we're a freemium product and that we're used by you know, hundreds of thousands of individuals and businesses for free. Um, and then about, I think, 60,000 of those are actually paying customers, meaning 60,000 businesses have adopted Expensify company-wide. And so that's more customers than the rest of the industry combined. So we're, like, we're deployed in more businesses than the sum of everyone else. Great. What kind of numbers, other numbers you can share around the business, such as you know growth rates, revenues, whatever you're open to share? Sure. Um, I guess I'd say we're... Uh, uh, we haven't broken the $100 million revenue level yet, um, but, close. but I would say we're growing, I think, latest I saw is like 80% or 88% year on year, and uh, we're pulling in over a million dollars a month in profit. Wow. Okay. Congratulations on that. And actually, I mean, one of the things we, we talked about before, even even hopping on live, is that you're, you're very focused on building businesses on growth and profit and, and you know, how that's a little different than, you know, what you're seeing in, in Silicon Valley uh, nowadays. So can you speak a little more to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is sort of this playbook historically where everyone's been focused on just top line revenue growth, which really drives a series of decisions, which are pretty destructive decisions. Because if everyone just cares about how much revenue you're making, it incentivizes a bunch of behaviors which don't really make good business. And I think that uh, that means um, the playbook is always about just like raising and spending as much money as you possibly can to drive up that number. And that model is never profitable. So basically you're always, because you're always competing against others in your industry who are using the same playbook. And so it's kind of like a game of chicken. Who's going to raise and spend in the lowest ROI fashion just to show top line numbers. And that sort of drives you. Eventually you find, you run out of suckers that are willing to invest in your business. And so you have to find it to go public. And then you find a whole bunch of public suckers that are willing to invest in your business at a loss for a long time to kind of sustain this model. And then eventually, you know, you kind of like crash with reality. There's massive layoffs. Everyone leaves. And then in the end, maybe you've preserved some of your business. And then whatever is kind of like shits out the end of that process is your business for the rest of your life. Or, <laughs> but, but, but as a founder, you would have left way before then because, of course, no one's going to stick around for that horrible ending. Right. And so as a result, there's kind of this startup entropy that is like the, the standard where like great people start a business and then, you know, they get in the industry, they're working hard, but then, you know, the old people come in and they uh, sort of like tell you how it's done. Uh, they raise a bunch of money, like all your best people leave. They hire a whole bunch of people and everything just kind of like grinds slower. And then eventually they go public. And then the few people that, you know, survived to the end start all over sort of thing. Right. And I think that that's really been driven by the public markets have really valued top-line revenue growth more than anything when it comes to SaaS businesses. But I think that's changing. And now I think that, I think McKinsey's done this great SaaS study talking about how there's pretty much an equal value being placed on profitability, like, like your margin versus your revenue growth. And I think that changes all of the incentives along the way, uh, because now actually profitability is just as important as revenue growth. And so as a result, you can create a very high-value company, even with slower growth. 
And this means that you just don't need to raise as much money. And if you don't need to raise as much money, that means you don't need to build a company that sucks that everyone wants to leave. You don't need to go IPO because you're not losing money. And I think that when we look at the best companies out there, they're not only the fastest growing companies, they're also the most profitable companies. So somehow we're like, yeah, you know, the, the secret to success is you lose a whole bunch of money. But I'm like, well, what about Apple? What about Google? These guys aren't losing money. What are you talking about? And so I think that I've always modeled Expensify after the truly successful businesses, which behave absolutely nothing like the VCs tell you you should behave. Got it. And, and so actually going back to the, the, the McKinsey report for a second, so, so make sure we don't lose it here. What, what, is that called SAS Radar? What is that report called? I don't remember. It's, uh, you can look up like the rule of 40 is kind of one of the uh, uh, keywords you can look for. I'll, I'll find it and we'll, we'll drop. Yeah, I think it is Fuel by McKinsey. So everyone, uh, that's Fuel by McKinsey if you want to Google it and then we'll drop it in the show notes as well. It looks pretty in-depth. So actually, I've, I've got a good question for you, David. So what about the people that, um, let's say they didn't necessarily raise money, but the company might be doing, let's say, three or four million a year and they're just reinvesting all their profits back into growth uh, because they don't want to raise money. What about that? That's, that person sounds amazing. That would be my hero. I mean, like that's how you should do it because then you maintain total ownership of your business, your total control of your destiny, like the, especially in sort of uncertain economic times, the most valuable asset is not your cash. It's a profitable business. It's the only thing that's inflation, inflation proof and depression proof. Right. So in that case, you're saying, you know, even though they're redeploying their profits back into the business, right, let's call it, you know, 30% margin, uh, that would still be considered, uh, you know, good in your book. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's, uh, yeah, I would say that's great. And I think the I think one of the challenges is it's it's hard to talk about yeah this this idea of reinvested profit because then it's no longer technically profit right right in the same way that's like Amazon arguably until like I think this most recent year has never turned a profit mm-hmm. except every single business unit is insanely profitable and so it's like well how do we talk about that so yes I think that there's I mean internally we have this concept of um, uh, of break even, which is basically, okay, what are our real expenses? The expenses that are actually hard to cut, like salaries and uh, like server costs and things like this. It's like, okay, we're going to, these are sort of our break even expenses. And like, um, then everything else above there is kind of fluffy, like marketing expenses. Like, um, we actually would account employee morale as one of the hard expenses because you start cutting back on morale costs and it starts changing the culture of the company. But, anyways, I think that, um, uh, but I don't actually, I know I work with a bajillion accountants, but there's not a, a clear accounting term in my mind for uh, how you differentiate between fluffy expenses versus real expenses. Because typically, marketing is seen as like a real hard expense, which I guess, for depending on the business model it is, if you're a very advertising-driven business, and if you stop advertising and you stop growth, then it's a hard expense. For us, we're a word-of-mouth business. And so basically, all of our advertising is just sort of opportunistic and uh, just experimental and brand oriented. And so we could stop it or start it. It doesn't have a clear effect upon the business. And thus, we really don't do any advertising at all. It's 100% word of mouth. There's no outbound calling. It's 100% inbound. We have no enterprise sales team. That's great. So actually, I mean, I want to talk about that for a second before we jump into kind of uh, culture and and morale. So how did you go about acquiring, let's just say your first, I don't know, 10,000 customers? And we'll just start with that. Well, I guess I would say it all came down to just paying attention to what was actually working and ignoring what people insisted must be working. And I'd say it's, I think the challenge of being an entrepreneur overall is that you are surrounded by a cacophony of people yelling terrible advice to you, generally advice that serves them 
at your expense. And but everyone says it. And I like, like for example, you know, all the you know the VCs will tell you that you you just have to raise a whole bunch of money. You just have to hire the top talent and all this stuff. And so you have to uh, do all of these things. That's like you know in your heart are completely terrible ideas. And it's like, no, that guy's a super asshole. And you're saying I just need to hire him and pay him an insane amount, even though he's completely a jerk and I don't trust him. It's like, no, trust your instincts. And I think trusting your instincts means going against the best practices of the industry. Right. And in our case, it really came down to him. It's like, oh, you're going to, you're building expense reporting? Cool. Great. I know how this works. You're going to raise a bunch of money. You're going to spend our ads. Those ads are going to go into a homogenous lead source, into an enterprise sales team. Of course, you're going to pay them via commission. That means that you have to have contracts. Your contracts have to be for multiple years. Everyone in the business is incentivized to go up market to maximize their commissions. That means you have to have a thick product management hierarchy, which goes down to an engineering team, which is highly segmented because it's super boring. And so you have to hire shitty engineers and manage them very closely. And like your entire business is very, very clear because it's what everyone else does. And I'm like, nah, man, I want to do it a little different. I was like, I want to have great people and uh, uh, we're going to sell into the small business. It's like, that's impossible. No one can smell into the small business at, at scale. I'm like, I don't know, Intuit can pull it off. They're like, well, they do it a different way. I'm like, cool, let's just do it a different way then. I'm like, okay. And so I think the um, for us, it really, we just saw that there was so much enthusiasm amongst individual employees and that created this incredibly powerful brand, which allowed us to grow through word of mouth alone. And even though everyone assured us that that could never possibly scale, that it could never possibly maintain growth, I'm like, man, we're bigger than everyone. I mean, obviously, Concur is bigger than us from like a revenue perspective, but we have more customers than them. And, and so I'd say, I think we've grown sort of primarily by ignoring what everyone is insisted we had to do and instead just focused on what actually seemed to be working. And then had a tremendous amount of patience, like... 10% month on month doesn't sound like a lot when you only have 10 customers, but 10% month on month sustained over a long period of time is insanely fast. And so if you can keep that up for a long time, then just pay attention to that, that exponential growth seems slow at the start, but it gets really scary fast at the end. How long has Expensify been around for? About 10 years. 10 years. Wow. Okay. Great. Congratulations on that. And I have to assume that the funding that you did take was after a long time. Correct me if I'm wrong. I guess, how did that play out? Yeah. So um, the first year, it was just me working nights and weekends while I had a full-time job. The second year was me working out of my savings. The third year was me and my co-founder working out of our savings. And then I think uh, that was about when we started to raise. And so we'd already been a couple of years into it. But if you're a programmer, your only real expense is yourself, and if you and you can control that expense very carefully. I guess your first, second, and third year, if you can kind of give people maybe an idea of like the specific numbers, because people are like, oh, you know, look at all these like huge valuations, you know, hundreds of millions a year ARR, like you read about that all the time. Realistically, what were you at like first year, second year, third year? Well, I mean, first and second year, we we're at zero mm -hmm. because we just didn't charge anything. And third year, we we're probably pretty much at zero too because again, nothing costs anything. If you have, you don't even take a ton of savings. If you have enough just to pay for ramen noodles for a year, like you can start a business. And, and so initially we weren't charging because we're like, look, I just need to figure out product market fit and all stuff. And I don't really care about optimizing a business model. But we realized that not charging was our biggest barrier to adoption. Cause people are like, look, I want to use your product, but you have no apparent way of making money. And so I'm like, I'm giving you the username and, and password to my bank account. Like, are you just stealing my money? Is that your business model? 
And so I'm like, all right. So we did actually charge because not charging made us seem super sketchy. And so we just came out with like, I don't know, just pick something out of thin air, five bucks a user. And weirdly, the industry settled around our numbers. And so everyone consolidated our completely arbitrary number. And then later we're like, oh, we need to charge more for a larger customer. Double feels like too much. So let's do $9 a user. I'm like, okay. And that's what we do today. (laughs) And so it's not very sophisticated. Uh, It's like 10 years later or seven years later or whatever, we're still the same price that we had pretty much when we started. And I think that uh, and the rest of the industry has just sort of like latched onto our pricing. That's great. And so I guess at what point did you decide it's time to raise money? I would say because I was young and naive, uh, it just it, we didn't decide. It just basically we had enough traction and word of mouth that we were just started getting inundated. And we we're so flattered. We we're like, wow, this just seems like such a good idea. The money seems so good. And we can do all this stuff. And and it seems like they're telling us we should advertise and we should do all this other crazy stuff. And so we kind of just went along with it. And so in retrospect now, I mean, who knows? Clearly, we spent every dollar we raised. And so it was well worth it. And so it's easy to sit here on the throne of success and say that, you know, I shouldn't have done it. But I do have regrets. I, I imagine there was a path out there that probably was a better path that involved monetizing faster and not raising money mm. or raising less money. And so I think about that all the time. Ideally, how much would you have raised? Because you raised over $6 million, right? So if you were to go back in time, what would it be? Oh, so we raised, I should think, that $27 million total. Okay. And so it was like a million, and then it was like 4.5, and then it was like, I don't know, I don't remember the exact rounds. Uh, we haven't raised anything in a number of years. And so what would be the ideal number? I don't know. I mean, the ideal number would be zero. Uh, could we pull that off? I mean, yes, for some definition of success, but success might be defined differently. Who knows? So I don't know, that's a real hard number to answer. Okay, cool. So before we talk about culture, one more thing. What is working for you guys? You mentioned, or I guess we didn't talk about it yet, but what is working for you nowadays in terms of growth? I heard a lot of word of mouth stuff. Are you doing anything that you think other people aren't doing in terms of customer acquisition? It's word of mouth. I would say we're the only ones that have actually bet upon it. Um, everyone else loses their nerve and uh, they just start hiring a bunch of advertisers, building up a model, and then they start fooling themselves with their numbers. That they're like, oh, you know, it's we spent this much money in total and we got this many customers. That must mean our cost of customer acquisition is X. It's like, well, did you actually attribute those customers to that advertising spend? And like, well, no, because no one can do that. It's like, okay, well, just because it can't, no one does it doesn't mean it doesn't need to get done. It doesn't. So I think people just lie to themselves. And I think that they... they and I think they knowingly lie to themselves because the VCs forced them to. Like they, they asked the, the stupidest questions, like um, uh, especially if it was a new startup. It's like you get a product barely built, so you have like a couple of customers, and they're like, "Cool, what's your cost of customer acquisition?" And you're like, "Listen, idiot, there's no possible way that I could give you that answer. There's no statistical relevance to anything I could possibly tell you. Like, why are you asking me just to lie to you?" And so you could explain to them how the whole idea of cost of customer acquisition for an early stage startup is just such bullshit. Yeah. But then you would just waste all your time. You wouldn't raise any money. Hundred percent. The much easier answer is seven, and they're like, "Oh, seven dollars? Like, or seventy? I don't know. Well, tell me what number you want to hear, man. It's all bullshit." <laughs> so I think that a, a lot of companies just get so caught up in in assuming that the questions they're being asked asked are the right questions, and then working really hard to generate answers to them, and then fooling themselves into thinking those answers mean something. And I think that most businesses are just built around the fiction, this fictional universe of what the VCs want, and they lose touch with the actual real world. Yep, 100% agree. So I have nothing to add there, but I do want to talk about culture. So 
you coming from a programming background, the way even coming from gaming as well, and the way I see like business is like I'm just playing a game at the end of the day, and you know, culture, humans, incentivizing people, everything. It's it's all part of like building systems, right? So I don't know if that's how you think about it. Um, can you talk about how you approach culture, what your mindset is? Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly growing up as a developer, there is this whole sort of imposter syndrome thing that we grapple with. And I think it's because, you know, we're humble people, we're insecure people, and we've been told by all these business people and salespeople that we can't possibly do their jobs. It's like, look, you know what, that's cute, your whole technology thing. You sit down at your computer, you stay in the back room in the dark, I'll take care of the real work. Uh, I'll raise money. I'll figure out customers and do all this product management. And, and they, they, they complicate their uh, their world with a whole, it's like, I'm going to do man, demand generation. It's like, so you're just going to advertise. That's what you're saying. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to do all this other stuff and make it sound super fancy. And so I think that, um, when you strip out all of the unnecessary jargon from the various sort of roles out there, like it's all pretty much the same. It's like, I don't want to build something or I want someone else to do something for me. And it just comes down to, I think problem solving and programming is really just about very rigorous and uh, deliberate problem solving. And I think that C++ is a great programming language, but English is even better. And so if you just take a programming mentality to every problem around you and realize people are just like computers, except in vastly more powerful and far less reliable. <laughs> and so it's like if, if you just had a whole bunch of computers that could kind of like you could talk to them, they could fill in the gaps a little bit, but – they're only as accurate as you are clear and you aren't very clear because no one is because miscommunication is commonplace. And so it's just like, well, what would you do? It's like, ah, I'd probably have some redundancy I'd probably clarify some protocols I'd do a lot of stuff. And I think that that's what all management is. It's just about getting very rigorous about how you use this, these tools to build something amazing. That's much more amazing than any of them individually. And so I'd say my approach towards culture is really kind of an approach towards programming. And that is, it's like, what would be the most amazing possible system? And let's try to build that. And realizing it's like, actually, a lot of stuff that people think is impossible is completely possible, but no one has really taken the time to actually build to build it. Like an example is, um, like, we like we love to travel. So like, oh, well, how do we get some time to travel? It's like, well, it's really hard to travel when you have a job, especially for like real good travel happens after like a few weeks. Like going somewhere for a week overseas is just kind of a waste of time. Well, I don't, that's, that's maybe an overstatement. But I'd say like um, – so one thing we do is we take the whole company overseas for a month every year. Wow. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm leaving on Friday. I've got a family in Siloam only going for two weeks this year. And our families – we have basically one week set aside for what you call fancy work week where essentially it's like – uh, we provide a whole experience for the complete family. And so we have like daycare for the kids. We have adventures like a day camp for them, like almost like a summer camp for the kids. For all of these sort of significant others, we have like wine tastings and all these experiences out. And um, and whole, everything's sort of like fully covered by the company. And so it's like, we, but we just take the whole company overseas for a month, which everyone assumes is impossible. Like we have 130 people plus families. It just, it seems like it would be an insane thing for a company to do, but we do it, and it's awesome. We, and that's why one of the many reasons why our team is gelled so much is because we invest so much time and energy in creating a full life experience. It's not just about getting rich with a startup. It's about living rich. It's about taking advantage of all of the flexibility and powers that you have and building the best possible lifestyle out of it. And it's just not something that people talk about because everyone else is so focused on measuring 
their cost of customer acquisition or chasing after the next round of fundraising. And I think they just lose sight of what really matters. It's like, no, let's, let's live an amazing life. And a startup is just one tool to do that. I love that. So is there, I mean, there's got to be somewhere where you've documented or written about how this entire, well, let's just call it process looks, right? Like what you guys do during that time, how that, like, I don't know, is, is there, do you have something like that online? I mean, not really, I guess. I would say like, we've talked about our, our offshore trips. We've done them every year and I, we're like the only company that does it, even though it's anyone could do it. It's not that hard. That's amazing because I want to I want to steal that. So I want to talk about that a little more, actually. So what I mean, in those four weeks, right, or three, four weeks, whatever, what are you guys what are you guys doing? Are you guys working a portion of it? Like, how does it all look? We're working the whole time. It's not like the I mean, the company doesn't stop. Certainly our customers needs don't stop. And so, yeah, we do all of the exact same stuff. We just do it from a different place. But like we work on the Internet, the Internet goes everywhere. So so can we. And I think that um, and so as a result, it's really made our culture very flexible in the sense that, you know, most startups think of like the workplace. It's like every startup in Silicon Valley looks basically the same in the terms of the, uh, the entrance is more or less grand depending upon how much money they've raised. And then after that, it's just like a factory floor. It's just long tables, giant monitors two if they're willing to waste a lot of money. And everyone just kind of like sits in this factory. You sit down at your assigned seat. You can talk to the person at your left, person to your right. You can't see the person on the side of the table because your giant monitor's in the way. And that's it. That's your entire world. And everyone's accustomed to sort of like, they assume they have to live in the factory in this sort of sweatshop. And that, that's the only way it can work. So every once in a while, so we'll hire some new engineer, especially a more senior engineer. And they're like, well, where's my two giant monitors? We're like, well, are you saying that you can only be productive if you have these giant monitors? They're like, yes, of course. Everyone agrees to that. It's like, okay, well, we travel for a month every year. Are you going to carry around those two giant reminders? Like, well, well, no. It's like, oh, okay, so you're saying that you can't be productive for that month. They're like, well, no. It's like, okay, so you're saying you don't need those two giant reminders. Is that right? I guess, yeah. And so as a result, like, we have no assigned seating. Uh, we have no big giant monitors. We have a suite, a bunch of super awesome offices. They're inc- incredibly flexible. They've got private rooms. They've got big rooms, small rooms, you know, giant open seating. It's more like a cafe environment because that's pretty much where we grew up. The first year was in Pete's. The second year was in a slightly larger Pete's. And, <laughs> and basically, whenever we're traveling around the world, we're primarily just hanging out in cafes. And so our offices are modeled after the cafes that we've experienced around the world, which are sort of our best work environment. But that's not the kind of thing that anyone talks about. Everyone just assumes that, of course, you have to have a certain office. Look around Silicon Valley. They all look exactly the same. It must be that way for the reason, right? And it's like... Well, maybe the reason is because they're all just super lazy. And actually, you can just do much better if you just stop following everyone else. Like, you can't follow your way to the lead. You have to start at some point making up your own decisions. And once you start doing that, don't just do it for one part of your business, but do it for every part of your business. And so everything that we do is evaluated from scratch. Uh, We've written blog posts about our, our compensation system, which is incredibly elaborate because we feel that fair compensation is incredibly important, which... Everyone would agree with on the surface, but then no one puts the effort into doing. If you can ask for a raise, that means that your company is underpaying you and hoping that you don't tell everyone else. Like in theory, unless you're being hired for your negotiation skills, you shouldn't asking for a raise shouldn't have any effect. You shouldn't have to ask for a raise because you should just be paid fairly and you shouldn't be able to manipulate the process by asking. And so in our particular case, we have basically a different panel of people pulled from around the company every uh, every compensation cycle, twice a year. 
And they will do this whole stack ranking process and then we'll normalize the results, we'll blend them, we'll center to check them, we'll do all these tests and so forth. And so there's really no one that has influence over your salary. Like the only way you can game the system is just to kick ass and make sure everyone knows about that. And then, but that's exactly what we want you to do. And so I'd say there's a lot of things that I don't want to say they're simple. Uh, like we put a lot more effort into compensation than any company I've ever heard of. We put a lot more effort into every single detail of the business, uh, whether like your seating arrangements, like the offices, you know, like when we, uh, we open offices around the world, but most places when they open an office, they're like, oh, great. It's because you want to pay less in that place. We're like, no, we pay everyone in the world according to San Francisco wages. And so uh, it doesn't matter where you live uh, because your value doesn't depend upon where you live. You can either live you know, comfortably above market in San Francisco, or you can be a baller anywhere else in the world because you're being paid so much relative to the local place. And that's why Portland is particularly awesome because it's an amazing place to be and the cost of living is so much lower, but you're being paid San Francisco wages. I love it. And then maybe a final thing also is like when it comes to equity, we, uh, uh, we're a private company. Uh, we're profitable. We haven't raised in years. Uh, we don't intend to raise ever again. We don't intend to IPO. We're just going to keep buying back shares. And so we actually recently bought out one of our early VCs entirely and just canceled all those shares. And so everyone just got reverse dilution. And so we're going to, we're creating our own marketplace internally for buying and selling shares, uh, rather than having to deal with the vagaries of the outside market. And so I think that all of this stuff is possible. It just requires creativity. And I feel like people are too limited in how they apply their creativity. David, if you wrote a book about your comp review processes, all this other stuff we're talking about right now, you know, traveling for a month with the team and I would buy that book. I would, I would <laughs> even pay a hundred dollars for that book. I'm, I'm, I'm not even joking. Oh, well, I mean... Books take a long time to write. Yeah, got a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I'm, I'm looking at, so this is your, um, this is the blog post, right? Expensivized comp review process written in 2016. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could just do the the whole, you know, Ben Horowitz thing, right? And just combine your blog posts. Yeah, I mean, we could. That's true. But at the same point, just because it works for us, if I were to write a book, it would be titled, Don't Read This Book or any other book either. And it's basically, it's like, look, if there's one thing I want you to take away from this book, it's that stop reading these freaking books. Just figure it out. It's not that hard. Just because it works for someone else, it does not mean it's right for you. And so just stop asking for advice and just start figuring things out because it's really not that hard. I would buy that book. If you put that title, don't read this business <laughs> book, I would buy it. I'm not even joking. See, you're, you're coming up with these ideas right now. I'm telling you they're good. But anyway, uh, working towards wrapping up here. So for you, I guess it sounds like, it, well, no, it doesn't. It actually doesn't sound like it. So tell me about one time where you're just like, oh shit, you know, we might we might die, or one big struggle that you ran into while running Expensify. Oh, I, I guess I would say probably the the, the biggest challenge was uh, uh, we went out to raise money once um, and we just couldn't, uh, even though like our numbers are through the roof. And I'll, I had so many partner meetings with VCs, and they'd be like, look, my whole portfolio uses you. And so I, and, and clearly everything seems to be working really great, but I don't understand how, like you're, you're not spending anything in advertising. You don't have any, you're like, I ask you, what's my, what's your cost of customer acquisition? And I'm like, look, it's not zero. We just, we just don't pay any marginal cost. And so like, okay, well, what's your lifetime value? It's like, I don't know, man, our, our cohort charts show that every past cohort pays us more now than they ever have. And so, so I mean, that means we have negative revenue churn which means I, I guess our lifetime value of a cohort is infinity. Yeah. And so it's like, so it's like, what? Well, so the ROI of your non-existent ad spend is like infinity over zero. Like, 
I guess, man. I mean, if that's what what you really want to measure, sure. But like, these are the wrong questions to be asking me. And then, so I just couldn't close around because everyone was asking the wrong questions. Everyone loves the idea of a disruptive business model, but then when they're faced with it, they're like, "Eh, I can't get my partners on board with that." Right. And so I just couldn't close around. Uh, But I had banked on being able to do so, and so I'd gotten our company to a very precarious financial position because I just assumed the money would keep coming. And I made a bunch of spending decisions that were just stupid in retrospect. Um, and that was a kind of our, our wake up call that we're like, whoa, we need to get serious about taking care of ourselves because the outside world is not going to come to our rescue. Um, and then that was a difficult time. We call it the expense sequester where we was like, all right, guys, we need to cut a whole bunch of stupid spend that we, everyone knows we shouldn't have done anyway. We're going to cut salaries. We're going to stop hiring. Um, and we're just going to get real about this. And, uh, that was, a very harrowing moment for the company, but it's an incredibly, I, I don't know, it was a difficult, but like it was maybe one of the highest morale times of the company because we all realized we can do this and we can take control of our destiny and we never have to pay attention to anyone again. That's great. Uh, I got two more questions for you. And I, I you know, this might even make, make, make a good point to, to do another one one of these days if you're open to it. But anyway, what is one new tool that you've added in the last year that's added a lot of value to your life? So it could be like a Peloton bike or like uh, Evernote. Oh, good question. <sighs> Sticking with the sort of counterculture, I would say I'm more excited about killing tools in our tool chain than adding them. Uh, we have too many tools. I use Evernote and I've been trying to like remove it and just go to Google Docs. It doesn't quite work as well in different ways. But I would say, no, I think that it's all about, we use Gmail, Google Dots, Vim, uh, GitHub, the basics. And every time we try to add something new and fancy, it always just fails. And so, no, I think it's like, the more exciting question is like, which tools have we dropped more recently? And so we've dropped CRM. We don't have any CRM. Uh, we've dropped, I'm trying to like rip out a bunch of stupid JavaScript transpiling junk that basically like, man, JavaScript development sucks anymore. So anyway, yeah, it's all about removing tools, not adding them. Love it. Yeah, my, my ops guy gives me crap all the time about all the tools that we have. And yeah, I, I feel you. It's, it's really overwhelming. So one final question for you. What is one must-read book you'd recommend to the audience? And you can say, I don't read too. <laughs> well, I would say, um, yeah, I would say I think business books are all garbage. The only one that I think is not garbage would be um, uh, The Innovator's Dilemma, which I think is pretty good. But I would say the two books I really love are... Uh, uh, guns, germs, and steel. Uh, it's all about basically the rise of humanity from like 30,000 years ago to like 3,000 years ago. And another one is called Carnage and Culture, which is all about the rise of Western culture starting around 3,000 years ago to the present. And I think that some of those two books for me kind of define my worldview in terms of why the world developed the way it did develop and why the cultures have formed in the way they have. And I think that, uh, yeah, I think both those books. Great. That's awesome. So, David, this has been fantastic. What's the best way for people to find you online? Uh, it's easy. Uh, go to Expensify.com. Um, you can email me. I'm David at Expensify. Or you can just search Expensify in the mobile app. Love it. David, thanks so much for doing this. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.